Flugelbinder create educational programmes to create change for people and planet. Flugelbinder started with Brad and Ian building conservation trips for students due to their love for the natural world. But they soon realised the power of travel to connect young people to global issues. It's through these connections and first-hand experiences that real change can happen. Flugelbinder performs sustainability audits, design and deliver workshops and run sustainable trips all over the world, educating students about their social and environmental impact. Flugelbinder, changing travel for future generations. Hello there and welcome to JobPod. Today I'm really pleased to say I'm joined by Brad Frankel and Phil Lunan from Flugelbinder. Flugelbinder, you, you design and build adventures to inspire change. And I want to talk quite a lot about that because you're now in partnership with the Geographical Association doing a whole raft of things, which we'll talk about later. But it's a really interesting organisation. But so are you two. And I want to find a little bit about you two before we go any further. Brad, you, you studied marine biology at Portsmouth University. You've travelled the world, world twice over, so that's one and three quarter times probably more than me. And, and Fergal, according to Red Bull, this was 2016, mind, and you've got a bit older since. You were in the running for the UK's coolest geography teacher. And you're still in the classroom, which is fantastic. It's uh, it called Janine Manuel. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Uh, good to be here, John. Yeah, uh, great. Great to be here. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really pleased. I'm, I'm looking forward to this because I've, I've been looking, doing a bit of research on both of you two fellas and Flugelbinder and and, and it's just fascinating. I, I think it'd be a good idea if you could tell us a little bit about yourselves and the journey that you made to becoming or realising Flugelbinder and its aims. So before we move on to talk about what Flugelbinder is and what your aims are for the future. So Brad, just tell us a bit about how you got to here. Um, big question. I don't know if we've got enough time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I guess I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was at school, um, just coming into sort of choosing A-levels and I'd been to Egypt with my dad and there were some guys messed around with some scuba tanks in the pool and they just said, do you want to give it a go? It was one of those kind of try dives and I did and three and a half days later became an open water diver. Went back to school and my teacher turned around to me and said, what do you want to do? And at the time, all I wanted to do was play football. And uh, he said, well, how about biology? He was my biology teacher. So I kind of felt like I had to say, yeah, <laughs> biology works. Um, and I just said, uh, I've just been doing scuba diving. It's been great. Um, and bear in mind, this was best part of 20 odd years ago now. So I don't think marine biology was on the top of many people's agendas. And... I said, yeah, marine biology sounds pretty good. So I chose biology, chemistry, and maths, uh, failed all three with a D and N and a U. Uh, (laughs) That's another story for another time. Um, But yeah, did a foundation year, got into Portsmouth University um, uh, a year later. And I just could never stop traveling, really. Uh, I met a good friend of mine at Portsmouth University called Ian, Ian Taylor. And I was working various jobs in sales roles and just my passion for travel just kind of kept coming forward. And every time I didn't have a flight booked or a trip booked somewhere, I had to book something. Um, and then a few years later, uh, found out through a mutual friend that Ian wanted to set up this travel company, all focused on conservation. So me and him sat down with a big map on the wall and thought about how we could take over the world. And it's been an incredible journey. 
it's gone from kind of conservation trips to then focusing on sustainability, then understanding the impacts of personal development, um, and more recently mental health now as well that we bring into the program. So it's constantly evolving, constantly adapting, especially this year, um, still changing loads, but it's, uh, yeah, it's been quite a, a fun journey so far. I'm not going to mention coronavirus just yet and, and what that's done to trips because that's just been a nightmare. We'll, we'll come on to that one later on. So Fergal, you're still teaching. Yes, yes, I am. Or, or rather, I am, am teaching. Um, I should make it clear I don't, I don't work for Flugelbinder. And yeah, I'm a, I'm a geography teacher. Um, I came to the classroom, I guess, sort of via the world. I became a geography teacher after circumnavigating the globe by bicycle and going on other adventures. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still teaching and I hope to be teaching for, for quite a bit yet. I don't know how you pack it all in because cycling around the world, that was a tremendous adventure. Um, but then managing to pack in a teaching job, a geography teaching job, is just, um, it's just really full on getting that whole, <laughs> whole thing to work. It is, it is. Um, but it's, uh, I mean, to be, I guess I went on most of my adventures before becoming a, a teacher. So I wasn't teaching when I was cycling around the world. But I think, I mean, I think a bit of worldly experience is, is important. Um, I think you need to have an experience of the world before you're teaching about the world. Um, so I feel really privileged to be in a position to, uh, to have, have had that worldly experience before I kind of entered the classroom. Um, you were teaching yourself, John? Yes, I, I was 30 years teaching and then 10 years at the Geographical Association. Cool. Okay, so you've got a yeah, you've got a, a feel for how hectic the classroom can be. But I, it, it's I, I do like this what you said about getting an experience of the world beforehand, and then it it, it allows you to make some links. I, I thought that that reference of yours, that uh, that quote, "Wine is essentially liquid geography," that <laughs> that really worked for me. I thought it was lovely. Yeah. Well, I I came into I was I sold wine before I before I taught geography. And I actually, and when I left school, I did an apprenticeship as a chef and then I, then I moved into wine and it was actually wine was kind of the gateway to, um, to geography for me. So I went back to university to study geography to give me a better understanding of terroir and a better understanding of wine. And then I really enjoyed the geography bit and I left the wine wine behind. Well, I didn't leave the wine completely behind. <laughs> um, Bit of a shame you can't do it with the sixth form. Hmm. What's that yeah. limestone imparted to the, uh, <laughs> the wine here? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it is like that's that's what's so exciting about wine. It is it is sort of a place in a glass, yeah. you know, and it is liquid geography. If it's good wine, it should express uh, the place and the people who made it. Um, so it is wine's liquid geography. I feel like we should have had a glass of wine out each year for this. <laughs> Maybe definitely, not. <laughs> Brad. You set yourself a target of a hundred countries before you reach forty. Um, how many have you got? I think I'm up to about fifty-two. So I'm not sure how, uh, especially with <laughs> with the last few months. Uh, yeah, not sure I'm going to make it, but not too concerned about making it anymore. Really, I guess it was target a few years back, and um, you make these targets at different stages in your life. But 
Yeah, it's funny. We, uh, me and Ian, I think collectively between us, we've been to about 75 countries. But one of our favourites is still good old St. David's over in Pembrokeshire. And Brad, can I ask you where, if you had to pick, and I was thinking a lot about this over lockdown where you're sort of like, will we ever be able to, you know, go anywhere again? And if you had to pick one and you were only allowed to go back to one place in the world, where would you go? It's always Thailand for me. Yeah. Yeah. Good diving, uh, a lot of good sort of good food, good people. Um, I just love the lifestyle. That island lifestyle out on Koh Tao has always been a, a favorite memory of my life. How about you? Oh, I don't know. Um, that is such a... I, sh- I should have had an answer prepared before I asked the question. <laughs> I'm going to ask John while I have a think about what I'd say. Do you know, I think I'd, I'd say Scotland. My, my dad was Scottish. We did a lot of Scottish holidays when I was young. And I've trudged a lot of Scottish mountains, run a lot of Scottish mountain marathons and done a lot of bivvying and wild camping and a bit of climbing. So I'd still go that local... Cool. Um, okay, I think Kyrgyzstan would probably be my my uh, my one pick because um, it's right in the centre of Eurasia and it has sort of a feel of all of the surrounding cultures and uh, countries. Um, so yeah, Bishkek and Kyrgyzstan. I'm really a big fan of of uh, of there. And some incredible mountains, I think. Amazing mountains. Yeah, really cool. Quite funny, actually, at the beginning of lockdown, I did my um, DNA test and I'm oh. at 1.2% Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. Hey. It must have been somebody on the Silk Road who wandered all the way up to, <laughs> to London. <Yeah. laughs> and then they went through Africa into Spain, Eastern Europe, and then ended up in the UK. Let's talk a little bit about Flugelbinder then. When I looked it up, it sounded rather like a new indie band. I wasn't quite sure where you got the, the name from. So it's from a, a good old 80s film with Tom Cruise called Cocktail. Me and Ian came up with the kind of idea of Flugelbinder, which when Ian first started, it was actually called Wave. It was it was just really difficult. We didn't want to be the typical tourist travel company out there. We wanted a name that was different. And we didn't realise how difficult it would be to say or pronounce or for people to take down. Um, and we would just kind of play around with names. I think at one point we had Green Carpet and Lazy Stuff and... We, uh, yeah, I was watching, I think Ian was watching a film one night and he just messaged me and I, he knows it's one of my favourite films and within five minutes I'd gone on to Company's house and registered the domain and then he turned around and said he was joking. I said, oh, it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> and we've just stuck with it for the last seven years. What is a flugelbinder? So it's actually the plastic aglet at the end of your shoelace. And actually, without sounding a bit too cliche, with it, what I love about the film is he goes, in these, he goes off into the army and he's back in New York and he's trying to chase the money and everything he's trying to do is get this job to chase the money. Mm. And what he realised by the end of the film is what, is what he wants and what he needs he's got just right around him. Um, so mm. it's quite nice if you think about just sort of being present and like you mentioned before, before Fogel, go off, do your travel, see the world, go and experience these things. But mm. quite often we realise a lot of them are right in front of us. Sometimes you need to go back to... Yeah, to come back or you need to go away to come back don't you to see what you had you've got a really really deep aim it's not just designing and building adventures but there's an aspiration to design and build adventures to inspire change how did that come about what's it all about so it kind of just kept growing really and still is i mean conversations we're having even now even today with schools is just becoming just phenomenal just bigger and more exciting and 
as I mentioned before, Ian was a lecturer in animal behaviour and ecology, and he would just get really upset and frustrated for his students. They were going on pretty bad trips. Um, the companies themselves were exploiting the students in terms of the fees they were charging them and the communities they were going to visit. And he just always felt that he could do it better. Um, and that's really where it started. So it was for in-situ conservation for animal management students. We then realised that actually by toning some of the content down, it would be really suitable for geography students and biology students. And we could adapt it to all, all, all levels, really. Then we realised the element of personal development. Um, but with the, the sustainability side, we became a, a B Corporation. or we, we found out about B Corps back in 2015. Um, and we became the first UK travel company to be a B Corp in 2016. Um, and it was kind of through the B Corp and GA that I actually met Fergal a few years back. And for us, being a B Corp, it just really put a stamp on just proving what that we, we are, who we say we are. We do what we're invested in. Um, and it's about people and planet before profit. And being part of that B Corp network was and still is really inspiring. There's incredible companies out there. There's brands that are just doing business the way they should do, do business. It's using business as a force for good. It's for people that aren't familiar with B Corp. Um, it's what fair trade is to food and coffee. So it's constantly looking at your social and environmental impact. And for us, it just kind of grew from there. Um, we then started to design and build workshops in schools to connect students to the sustainable development goals. So each of our projects are aligned with the UN SDGs. And we felt that there was a, th a three phase model that we developed of educate, connect and change, because we felt that you could go in and you could teach students about these issues, but until you create that connection through the experience that then results in that socio-emotional change to behavior, um, it's that connection that's so important. And it's, it's getting on a plane, it's traveling somewhere really far, it's having those tired moments and eating good food and bad food and getting to, I don't know, Delhi and smelling and seeing and hearing so many colors and so like the senses are just kind of going crazy. Mm. It's that stuff that makes the experience and you can't get that through a screen or through uh, a YouTube channel or anything like that or Instagram. So it's that experience we're really passionate about. But then what we realize is actually it's the journey for us starts when they then get back because that's when the change happens. So by connecting them to these SDGs, get, getting them to think globally, but then act locally. And we now measure the impact of that. So we run surveys both before and after the experience, that experience being the connection phase or for most people, the trip. And we then can monitor any changes in behavior towards sustainable practices from the clothes they buy to how long they shower for, how they get to school, how many meat and dairy meals they're eating a week. So we can create a, a kind of picture of their sustainable footprint, their carbon footprint, and then see if we've had a positive impact as a result of that. And we also now, as I mentioned earlier, we realize the impact on personal development, um, uh, critical thinking, problem solving, communication, resilience and mental health issues. We now also track changes in behavior um, for mental health and wellness. So we use the Warwick Edinburgh Mental Wellbeing Scale so we can track if they've improved as a result of the experience. So our long-term goals is to be able to turn around to someone like the NHS, which they're all really doing now in certain counties, but to get them to really understand and appreciate the impacts of the nature fix, impact, impact of these kind of outward bound adventures. 
outbound adventures and say rather than investing in treatment after the issues happened um, as a curative let's look at preventative mechanisms and if we can invest things into forest schools and outdoor adventures and things earlier on and give students the skills the tools resources to be able to apply that to other things that life may throw at them so yeah it's become quite a big engine now um, now even going into schools and doing audits and then we bespoke the workshops and lectures to help the school achieve the goals they want to, um, such as carbon net zero by 2030 or single use plastic free by the next two years, things like that. We had a, an exchange that we did with um, a school in Makanduchi on Zanzibar. One year we took our students there and then the next year we brought their students back here. And uh, the joint experience or the shared experiences were were pretty amazing and, and revealing. One of the things that Mr. Canoli told me, that what their teacher when he went back, when they were writing about the experience, because uh, it, it, it was uh, the, the village that we worked with, uh, the school had no windows, it was just beaten earth. It was, a, it was a complete different experience for them, was the lorries that ate the rubbish. That was the thing that we took, we take them to Chatsworth, we take them to the Houses of Parliament, but the thing that they remembered most, those students from there, were the, the lorries that ate waste. They couldn't believe how much waste <laughs> we generated. <laughs> so that was a surprise for ours, that that was what they'd, they'd taken away. That was a really interesting. And for ours, getting that feedback in it again was, was amazing. I think what's really interesting about that as well, and something that we, we learn every single time we do a new trip, is that everyone's on the same trip, but they're on their own journey. And as you say, they all take different things from it. And for some people, it's the first time they've been in the sea. It's the first time they've been to those kind of communities and those environments and ecosystems. So whilst it's the, it's the same journey, it's completely different for every single person that's on it. It, it might be worthwhile me just mentioning something that you talked about earlier, not on this podcast, but when we were talking earlier about the, the programme of um, 230 by 2030, based on the, Eric Chenoweth's work. Yes, yeah, Eric Chenoweth. Um, so we, we, we found out um, through, I think from, from my end, it was more through Extinction Rebellion and what a lot of their strategies and things were based on. And it was based on Eric Chenoweth's model of three and a half percent. And she looked at civil disobedience over the last hundred or so years um, and civil movements that had created change. And she worked out that if you can get three and a half percent of the community population on board, then that's when change can happen. And I understand Extinction Rebellion based a lot of their models and strategies on that three and a half percent number. Um, so we thought, you know what, we could, we could do something quite interesting here. And if we take six or so thousand schools in the UK, but if we can just connect to three and a half percent of them, um, then hopefully we can also create change for a more sustainable future within those schools. And, and it's the it's the domino effect and the ripple from that as well. You start working with a geography teacher and a geography class, and you then work with the biology department, and then you then open up to the rest of the school, and then you've got students going home to their parents and the wider community. So they're such amazing places, schools, to be able to help with uh, our goals around sustainability. So we designed a, a two thirty by twenty thirty campaign, which we're just starting. How many of your students have been involved, Fergal, with this? Not no, I've only just joined the school, so I'm there there about a month. So oh, I'm just still getting to know everyone. Then. <laughs> Sorry, 
hey, listen, we've got the coolest geography teacher in the UK. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. As you said at the at the top of the podcast, that um, I think that that's f- four years out of date now. That coolest <laughs> geography moniker. So there's probably some young Turk who's who's uh, <laughs> cooler than me. I think it would be useful now if, if we talk about the, the the game changer program because it isn't everything isn't in, in far distant countries where where these changes can happen is it we can have those sorts of life-changing experiences close to home as well we don't have to take them across the world although that is wonderful for for understanding other other communities and and other lifestyles you can also do it locally yeah we started um with our, our program over in Pembrokeshire about three four years ago we also had one um, not far in Epping Forest as well um and it was to make it inclusive. We, we never wanted to work with just independent and private schools. We wanted everyone to have the opportunity to go on these programmes. And that's where we started to look at projects closer to home. And, and again, still focus on that outdoor nature fix experience. Um, it's why we're really passionate about being by the coast, because I think it brings a different energy. Um, there's a great book, uh, Blue Mind, that I've read a couple of times. That and Nature Fix by um, Florence Williams are two of my favourite. And out there, again, it's a very similar program. It's that reconnection to nature, but our four key pillars through every single activity we do, which is conservation, sustainability, personal development, and mental health. So it doesn't matter if we're doing a boat tour around Ramsey Island to look at local fauna and flora and the bird species. Uh, We'll be talking about marine ecosystems and conservation in situ conservation. We'll also be looking at the sustainability side of say ecotourism and seasonal tourism and the impacts and pros and cons it can have within that community and environment Uh, and then the personal development could be courage or fear or resilience getting into that ecosystem and and fear around getting in the waves in the water and again the mental health side of things of looking at mindful minutes and wellness and being present so we use those four key pillars along amongst every activity we do, whether it's surfing, co-steering, a boat tour. Um, and yeah, thought it was really important to bring them back home so everyone can access them. If I'm a teacher and I want to set this up, then would you work with me and, and make that bespoke? Yeah, so everything we do is completely bespoke, which is um, which has its challenges, but it's it needs to be because every school works so differently. And we find that some schools are doing some things, some things really well. Some of the departments never speak to each other. Um, And what we're trying to do is bring all of those departments together, teaching staff, non-teaching staff. We're working on big case studies where we have the gardeners working with the laundry guys and the caretakers. And uh, we're we're bringing all of these departments together for that unifying goal of a carbon net zero. So by speaking to a school and understanding where they're currently at, what they're doing well, understanding their carbon footprint and what their goals are, we then bespoke workshops whilst we're out there on the programme in Pembrokeshire, for example, to teach the students about these issues, but then also, again, to bring it home so they can understand what's happening in their school and hopefully take things from that trip to then implement when they get back home in their local communities. Virgil, do you you get involved in this to sort of rein them back, the two of them, when you think that that just isn't going to work in a school because it's, it's too ambitious? This is what you need because teachers are this busy or that busy and this is how this will work. Yeah, myself and Brad have chatted a few times and I have been the maybe the sober voice of reason. But I think I think uh, they have a pretty good offering and, and they have a pretty good understanding of how things how things work in schools. And I think that's what what probably gives them gives them the edge. Um 
because they're very sort of student focused and pragmatic. There's a lot that you do in schools anyway, isn't there? You do workshops, talks. These aren't just tied in with the Wales programme, are they? You do these as separate standalones. Yeah, so we have a, a variety of talks that we, we can offer. Uh, again, focusing around conservation and sustainability um, from uh, looking at climate action, looking at the SDGs, uh, more specifics, biodiversity, ecology modules. So again, from the bespoke nature, it depends on the cohort. So sometimes we work with entire year groups and they'll ask for just more of an inspirational talk around conservation and sustainability, um, or we might be speaking to A-level geographers and biologists and it's more specific around ecology biodiversity in situ conservation those kind of topics one of the things that i was i was wondering about was achieving for geographers there's always a little bit of a dilemma i don't want to travel too far because of my global footprint i want to be careful about how much travel i do but i want to i want to travel because i want to see other people because that's how you broaden your mind that's how you understand other communities that stops us othering which is what's happening with many of the migrants. So how do you achieve this compassionate and sustainable travel? So for us, it's uh, again, it, it takes on a lot of the B Corp values. It's looking at our supply chain to start with. So for us, we first, we choose a destination based on a project. Um, we don't just kind of say, you know what, I really fancy going to Thailand, let's build a project there. Um, but we, we find or hear about a particular program, uh, whether it's marine conservation or terrestrial conservation, and then we go and check out that project. Um, and whilst we're there, we look at other activities and other cultural sites that we can visit, and then we build an itinerary from that. Um, and again, making sure that we work with um, local and independent hotels as opposed to big international chains from an eco-tourism perspective, those kind of the adventure trips can put over 65% of profits back into those local communities. The all-inclusive and um, cruise ship type holidays can quite often have less than 1% left in those communities. So teaching people about the right way to travel is really important. Um, we then have calculated the carbon footprint of each of our programs. So as a, as a business here in the UK, everything we do is completely carbon positive and all of our trips are completely carbon positive. So what we do is we, we calculate the footprint um, and then we add on an extra 20%. There's a gray area at the moment in terms of being carbon neutral, being carbon positive. Technically, you could add 101% and be carbon positive. I think the average is around 5 to 10%. So like uh, in all areas, we wanted to go above and beyond. So we increase that to an extra 20%. So then when we have a group of students going to Peru, for example, we calculate that footprint. Usually we would have invested all of the... Um, money into a uh, carbon partner uh, we're now with one carbon world who are a un accredited partner so we're part of the um, united nations carbon um, net carbon free program um, but what we do now is we're going to split it so 50 percent of that amount will go towards those projects and they can include stove guapa stoves and different kind of cooking stoves over in africa um, life straws and renewable wind farms um, over in india and what we're doing now is we only invest 50% there and with the other 50% of the money, we'll have 25% of that for the students to plant trees in the country to go to visit and then 25 to plant trees here where they're based in the UK. Because if it was really important for that engagement and that activity for them to understand what their footprint looks like. And to understand place, which is geographically very powerful at the moment. There's a, there are whole areas of the A-level specifications that talk about a, a better understanding 
of place and connections to place, which I suppose brings me to, um, well, it actually brings me to, to, to the book that um, Fergal has uh, been involved in editing, The Kindness of Strangers. For me, it's the essence of why we travel. One of the quotes in the book says, travel opens our minds to the world. It helps us embrace risk and uncertainty. Well, it certainly does when you read some of these stories, but it, it also helps us understand the people we meet and, and the places that we visit. This is, um, this is a wonderful collection of, uh, of travel stories. I've done quite a lot of work with teachers in the past where we've looked at understanding place through, through story, which is how Brunner talked about it as better learning. We all tell stories, but stories are, are, are very powerful ways of getting the, the sense. You talked earlier, Brad, about the sense and the noise and the bustle. If you're not there, then the nearest thing is really a novel or a story or an account. These are stories of, of people who've been traveling with in what might feel like unfamiliar and, and sometimes hostile areas and actually finding wonderful connections with the people who live there. How did you, how did you get the idea, Fergal, for this? Well, I think, um, <clears throat> I think we're always telling stories when we, when we travel. Um, I think we're always looking for stories. And what we tried to do with Kindness of Strangers was to sort of tell a human story and just to remind people that, and it, was, it sounds so simple and probably maybe a little bit basic, but to remind people that the people over there are the same as the people over here. Um, and to try and work a little, well, it's in a very small part against the increasingly growing narrative of fear. And you mentioned othering earlier, John. Um, and I guess creating a sort of an idea that people are different to us and in some way less human than us because they come from another place. And we did that by taking um, stories from sort of heroic explorers and adventurers and journalists and people we would generally see as, as sort of strong, intrepid um, travelers. And we asked them to tell a story about when they were vulnerable um, and when they were in a position that they needed help. And hopefully um, when you read the book, you're reminded that any of us could be in a situation where we need uh, someone else to, look after us or maybe take us in or give us a hand because I mean we are we are all sort of part of one collective human whole and uh, sometimes what we read in newspapers and sometimes see on tv can can maybe make us question that um, and that's that's essentially that was the, the the sort of essence and the spirit of the kindness of strangers was to take that because the one thing I I found on all of my journeys and that I heard recurring when I spoke to um, people who'd been on similar difficult journeys was just that, that idea that when people would be at their lowest ebb, when they'd need help the most, someone would pop out of nowhere and just provide that thing, whether it was just a refill of water or whether they needed, you know, their bike had broken or their oar had, had snapped or something. There was always someone there to help them. And it just makes you think, what are, you know, how, how charitable and hospitable and how kind are we, we may be being to strangers who need us. 
We've talked on other podcasts about um, the way that the media portrays uh, <laughs> quite often Africa, so that the students come away with thinking Africa is a country, and, it, and, mm. and all the students, all the young people there, are, are poverty struck because that's what we see when we see Red Nose Day. Those are the images that they're, they're bombarded with quite often. Mm. There's a Thesiger quote in, in the book um, where he pondered on desert hospitality, he says, compared with our own, as their lavish, lavish hospitality had always made me feel uncomfortable, for I'd known that as a result of it, they would go hungry for days. And it, it, it hits home with me, because when we were in Makinduchi the first night, they provided us with this wonderful meal. Well, I'm old enough, because my mum and dad always used to say, you've got to eat everything on your plate. So we kept eating, <laughs> not, not realising that they were going to eat what we left. And we didn't leave anything. And we didn't find out till the next day. What a nightmare. <laughs> I think, I mean, there's, yeah, I, I can identify with that that story, um, that sort of humbling story when, and and it's something that I, I, I've noticed on, on my travels that there's a, almost uh, a correlation between how much people have and how much they'll give to someone who, who, who needs, is, who's in need. And I think there's something about comfort and um, affluence that can sometimes make people forget um, what it's like to be uncomfortable and to lack. Um, and I think what you've described is, is a story that, that, that I've heard so many times and I've been on the receiving end when people will move heaven and earth to help me. And realistically, I don't, I don't need the help. Um, but there's something I think about like I say, comfort that can sometimes make us less compassionate. And that's what we were trying to do with the book was just remind people and just kind of evoke uh, a scenario where, where people might make, make themselves question that again. And stories are so powerful for doing that. Mm. The story is a really good way of, of better understanding, much better than reading it in a textbook, in a dry textbook. The other thing that got me... When we went to Tanzania the first time, we were met by um, we were met by the military with with machine guns. It was all very formal. They took us to the school, and I, I must say I had this impression that perhaps that their humour would be different from ours. But the rainy season had started. Makanduchi is the, the red mud of Zanzibar. If you go a bit further north, you get to the white coral area, but it's mm. thick, red, gloopy mud. And one of my colleagues and I were walking past this primary school and he fell over in the mud, completely fell over flat on his face. And then we were faced with roars of laughter. All the primary school children all came out to watch us. They were in their beautiful uniforms. They weren't going to get muddy, but they were killing themselves because the Mzungu had fallen over. Uh, and it had not struck me that they, honestly, I should have known, but they laughed at exactly the same things that we laughed at. They laughed at silly falling over human. I'd, and I'd, I'd not really taken that on about how we're all so much more alike there are many more similarities than differences i think that's what's really important now when we quite rightly and and you were you were saying this to brad a minute ago we quite rightly are are really considering our travel and the ecological and environmental impact of travel um and also i guess with the virus we're we're looking inwards a little bit more and we're looking more local um but I think it's really important that we don't stop traveling because we need to maintain that, that connection 
with the world. And the best way to do that is true experience. And I think we can travel less, but we can travel more in a meaningful way. And I think that's what we're, we should be aiming for as we, as we go forward, because if we lose that connection to people from other places, um, then I think we're in trouble. And develop a better understanding of why people are moving, because we see the sort of stuff at the moment about, oh, I, I, I can't believe it when I, I watch it on the, uh, no, it was, I, I think it was on Twitter this morning when I read it, about, th- this was some blue sky thinking about developing waves to push the, the migrant boats back into to the sea. You might not have read that yet. I have, I don't think it's blue sky thinking, I think it's, um, I think it's racist. <laughs> Well, yes, it is. <laughs> of course it is. Yeah. We, we ask our students to think about migration, but if we're not careful, it's, it's, mm. it's words and units of, of things moving rather than people. But um, all, the, all the A-level specs, and GCSE for that matter, at, at A-level, and, and GCSE at geography, look at global migration. The OCR spec talks about how global migration causes inequalities, conflicts and injustices for people and places. But unless we've got stories, those mm. things, are, I don't think, are made real enough. And I think that's what one of the stories in here does with, with the refugee camp in Calais, where you worked for a, a length of time. Oh, I, I just visited for, for just for a night. But I think, I think you're right. I think that's probably the crossover between um, the... What, what we do in the classroom and what, what Brad is doing out um, in the world. And I think when we talk about stories, there's different types of stories. There's, you know, narratives that tie everything together. And then there's a personal narrative. There needs to be, we need to have sort of write our own story to understand our place in the world um, and, and also understand our, our kind of relative position to other people whether that's our, our you know, uh, relative privilege if we live in the UK um, or um, just, I guess, to make sense of, of, of how we, we exist and where we fit in. And that's where, where I guess, travel and meaningful travel um, can allow us to, to start. And if you're, if you're a, a young person, you, you're sort of starting your journey of writing your own story. And very often that can happen with something really sort of life affirming like a big trip finally on this one but i think it's interesting i think it would it, it interests me as a as an xa level teacher i was looking at a, an academic article it's called it was called the non-human interest story depersonalizing the migrant and it's by anita howarth at brunel university we can put the link in for that one but um, she looks at how elements of the media and newspapers which we talked about earlier really deliberately employ techniques to to dehumanize and other and depersonalize so these these people are not people in the end what we're looking at it's about challenging that as as geography teachers i think so that students are thinking more critically about the news that they're being given and why they're being given the news in the way that they are what's the story behind what they're being told rather than what we've got here quite often is people's personal accounts of, of meeting these these people it's um there, there are a couple that in the, the kindness of strangers particularly that chapter i think is a really nice one and and the banksy of bangladesh is another one so i, I will uh, we'll put a link to this and uh, i think if i was a, an a-level teacher i'd be 
I'd be lifting bits of this out to give to my students. But I do come back to you, you do need to you do need to travel. There's a Chris Durban quote that says um, virtual fieldwork is like a virtual pint of beer. And Brad, you've said the most difficult thing as a geography teacher is trying to teach about the world from inside a classroom. It's like trying to teach music without musical instruments. It's definitely key to, uh, to build adventures that inspire that sort of change. There are contradictions, aren't there? I've been reading a critical framework. This was a critical framework for interrogating the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals agenda. And there are only three that relate to tourism. And yet tourism is one of the, the biggest and growing industries globally. Yeah, I find that hard to, um, I find that hard to believe really. I mean, we can quite easily connect every single SDG to our trips and adventures. And I think that's what's really important about them. And as you guys are just discussing, it's, it's these personal stories and these adventures that bring these topics to life. I mean, we can talk about poverty and hunger and life on land and life below water, but until they've been there themselves, they've seen it or they've heard someone tell their story and, and that topic becomes a place and there becomes a name and a person behind it. They can then connect it. I mean, travel and tourism from, apart from, let, let's not talk about 2020 for the time being, because stats have kind of gone all over the place. But before that, prior to that, travel and tourism contributes to one in four jobs. I mean, when I first started looking at this, it was one in 10 jobs. A few years ago, it was one in five. And they now say one in four jobs. It's one of the biggest in terms of global GDP. It's always sort of top 10. And yes, on the negative side, it has one of the biggest in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, um, and that's the negative side of it. But from an overall net positive perspective, again, going back to what I mentioned earlier, from an adventure type of travel, it can be done in the right way. And I, I strongly believe that travel has the power to be one of those sectors that could be the most, not only just in terms of global GDP, but has the potential to be one of the most positive industries on the planet because of those experiences it gives people, because of the connections it can give someone to the SDGs. We can, we can talk about some of these topics, as I mentioned, all, all day long in the classroom, but one of the impact reports, um, that, so once a school has been away with us and when they get back, they have a full impact report um, that looks at the surveys I mentioned, changes in personal behaviour towards sustainability, mental health, um, and also we, we break down the carbon footprint of the trip. And it was really interesting because this one group of students, there was 33 from a Southwest London school that we took out to India. And we looked at the carbon footprint of the trip and we, we, we did some stats and some data behind it. And we worked out that if every student in that classroom of 32 would turn off a 100 watt incandescent light bulb for a year, it could put 150 kids through school in India. And they just couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe, I mean, and they'd met these kids. They'd been there. They'd spent three, four days with them. They were teaching them English. They were teaching them maths and colors and games. And they sat and had lunch with them. And it was, it was that connection, that experience that they had that then allowed them to think, okay, all I need to do, and it comes back to what I said earlier, it's that kind of think global, but act local. All I need to do is turn off a light switch. The saving from that has an impact. And there's a lovely quote, and I'm sure you guys might've heard it before, but it's, if you ever think you're too small enough to have an impact, just think about what a mosquito can do in a room at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and if the, it's, it's one person that can make a change. And for me, my change was about six, seven years ago. And it started off with my reusable water bottle. 
And at first I was one of few people carrying around a water bottle and my friends would look at me at 10 in the morning and if I was drinking, like, have you got gin or vodka or something in there? I was like, no, no, it's just water. Like no one could get the fact that I carried around a water bottle. That then carried on to a coffee cup, that then my energy supplier being bulb because they're a B Corp. If I'm buying peanut butter, it would be Pippa Nut because they're a B Corp. If it's clothes, it's Patagonia because they're a B Corp. So you start to realize the influence that these experiences have on your behavior. And one of the most important ones that we bring back to schools here is SDG 12. And that responsible consumption production is something I think they can really get on board with because it's, it's something they can relate to. Um, and they can, they can look at the difference of, or they can understand the importance of their purchasing power as a consumer. And um, that can be interpreted as a vote in what they believe in. I mean, it's a really easy decision. And I think that's the thing with sustainability is you need to make it easy. It needs to be an easy and fun language and it needs to be convenient. Um, a great example I use in the classroom when we're talking about B Corps is, is something like, as I say, Pippa Nut peanut butter or Ben and Jerry's and Hug and Does ice cream. I've got nothing against Hug and Does, but Ben and Jerry's are a B Corp. So I would purchase Ben and Jerry's over Hug and Does. I know that their ethical supply chain, I know about their packaging. I know that they're going to offset all their refrigeration um, and their logistics. So it's, it's really getting students on board with understanding that they can make really small changes to their day and it can have a really big impact. Do you ever do any work critically thinking about unsustainable tourism? I'm, I'm going back to my example at, on, on Zanzibar, but um, when we were there, there wasn't very much tourist development. I've, I, it's a long time since I went. But since then, the students have complained about particularly Italian hotels fencing the beach off. They, they employ Zanzibarians to sweep the beach to take the, um, the seaweed off. But in the hotel, the chefs are Italian. The waiters are Italian. There's an Italian experience. And all you actually do is you go out on your little Jeep and you become a tourist who's, who, who's looking at almost like in a goldfish bowl. They don't actually interact with that place at all. Yeah, I mean, I've just, I, I find it difficult to relate to that. I mean, to even want to go somewhere where you're going to be so secluded and really kind of get that experience of local experiences and local people and meeting um, that community. Um, and I think that's what's nice when we work with a lot of fringe community, a lot of fringe environments, because generally when we're looking at sort of threatened habitat and vulnerable species, we, we work with those local communities that are kind of out on the front line. Um, and these are communities that have been um, impacted the most as a result of quite often our, our actions as Westerners and that those greenhouse gas emissions because of our consumption. Um, but I think looking at unsustainable tourism, it, it's, a, it's great for case studies. It's, it's good when we run the workshops with the students for them to start thinking about these different areas. So when you make comparisons like that and starting to think about um, the communities that people are employing, the places that they're at, um, and starting to just create awareness around their social environmental impact, I think that's the first stepping stone because we seem to just kind of go through life quite often without thinking about this stuff. And if we can get them to actually think about their impact, think about the difference of, a straw or a plastic bag or a cup and the knock-on effect that has. So then in five or 10 years time, when they're planning their own adventures, they're thinking about who they're going to use, why they're going to use them and the kind of experiences they're going to have. And I suppose that leads us to the 
really, I want to ask you about the Prue trip because that's fascinating. But that's what you do do. You work with the local community and you look at the local environment. There's several days, isn't there, involved in the trip that does just that? Yeah, so we, um, we're running the Peru trip next, um, next March, end of March and April, um, over the Easter break. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, four teachers to go out and see what we do. And, and we start in Cusco and acclimatising Cusco before we go down through the cloud forest um, and stay in probably one of the coolest places I've ever stayed in. It's a, um, it's a pulley on a cart and you have to pull yourself across the river. Only two people can go at a time. Um, so it's a good way into the cloud forest. And then we're in the Amazon for about four or five days in a place called Manu National Park and all kinds of biodiversity and ecology studies, working with the local community and agroforestry projects. And um, it's uh, from there we go up into uh, Machu Picchu with a half day trek on the Inca Trail. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so that's the Peru trip that we have. Um, and then with the GA, because we're on the board for the um Geographical Association Special Interest Group to, to Nicaragua, which is also running next year, um, and the various case studies in there to integrate to the geography curriculum. Um, we have a cacao factory visits and um, tobacco factory and hydro plants. Uh, there's a rum distillery, the most sustainable rum distillery in the world. So I think we'll visit that one with the teachers, but maybe not the students. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of details in the GA mag, so we'll put a link to that. Right. And I'm working on the, uh, the Peru trip. Um, I want to ask you the last couple of questions. You've mentioned this a bit, but how do you go about measuring the impact of what you do? Um, so there's various ways, really. It's, it's hard because we want to do it on a bigger and longer term scale. And it's, that's where it's really key working with secondary schools from those early years, because we have the engagement and connection with students across those years. But measuring our impact as a, as a business, we do through the B Corp assessment. So every few years you have to retake the assessment, um, the BIA, and you can see what areas you're working on and need improving. Um, so we increased by 10% the last time that we took it. And then the other areas for us are looking at the impact that we have on the schools and the students, which is mentioned. So we do that through the surveys for the students. Um, and then with the schools, again, it's all bespoke. So it really depends on what their goals and targets are. So we sit down with them and part of the Game Changer program starts with that sustainability audit. And we would look at, help them understand where they currently are at the moment and then sit down with SLT, SLT and various stakeholders to really map out those goals and targets and those main aims of where they want to be. And then we build the programs to help them align um, and track and monitor the progress through different areas from waste to recycling to um even purchasing and procurement and making sure they're using an ethical supply chain, um, general energy bills, those kind of things that we can quite easily track and monitor. Well, and lastly then, what thoughts, advice, what, what finally would you like to leave the end of this podcast with for geography teachers to go away and think about? Um, what I love about geography teachers is that they're so keen to get outdoors. Um, and obviously with COVID and I mean, as Fergal, and the downside of what, travel has as an impact and as Fergal mentioned and through his stories and experiences how important those experiences are um, and it's they're, they're life-changing moments that there's nothing else to say about it it's it's those moments that have shaped my lives and as geographers just keep doing what they're doing and for me I don't know how it's not a core subject um, but people need to understand the world they live in and, and it's through those experiences that I think real change can happen. What about you Fergal? 
I love the idea of making a, a geography a core subject. I think if I was if I was God or um well, the coolest uh, geography teacher in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um I would I think we should I, I think geography should be the, the first subject and everything else should should bow down to to it. Um but uh I think yeah, I think we sh- we shouldn't we, we shouldn't be afraid from looking out and um, I think we should all, I mean, John, as you sort of um, gave a, a, a kind of a case study there of, of um, unsustainable travel. And I think that type of travel, I think there's no future in that. Um, and I think people have seen that it's, you know, it's a lot of hassle and they don't really come back with anything other than a tan um, and maybe some duty free. Um, but I think, that doesn't mean that we should just stop traveling. I think it's essential, as Brad said, it's essential to travel um, for the economies that that travel feeds into um, and for our own personal, our sense of humanity. And I just think we have to keep keep traveling, go less, but more meaningful. And I think um, holiday reading ought to be the kindness of strangers. And if you're a geography teacher... <laughs> This ought to be one of your core texts to dip in and out of any time when you're talking about travel, movement of people, and yet the kindness of strangers. Hey, listen, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you two fellas today. Thank you very much. And um, good luck with everything. And, and maybe I'll see you in Peru. Hopefully <laughs> <laughs> see you out there. Thanks a million. Hi, it's Mark from the GA membership team. This week, we have a special offer for you. The Top Spec Geography series is designed for post-16 students and provides an easy-to-follow approach based on the latest research on a wide variety of human and physical geography topics. These cutting-edge resources help bridge the gap between A-level and university and are the perfect accompaniment to A-level geography. Titles include Migration and Global Governance and Water and Carbon Cycles and you can now get 15% off any of the six titles available using the code Top Spec 15. That's all capital letters, followed by 15. Top Spec 15. Visit the GA shop on our website to purchase your copy today. Top Spec 15. <laughs>